They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 21 The Man at the Bar Hello again. I've been away on work-related activities for a few weeks and that's all now completed so I can now throw myself back into the investigation. I've got a bit of a clear run now until about Christmas on this so I'm very much looking forward to this. In a way finishing episode 20 felt like a natural place to break anyway, a good place for a pause. It felt almost like it was the end of the first season. We covered a lot of ground in that first 20 episodes so it was also a good opportunity for me to take a step back and reflect a little bit on the investigation so far. Sometimes when the pressure is on, I don't get much of a chance to take a step back and see things perhaps from a more elevated view, get a better sense of what's important, what's not important. Perhaps see the terrain a little bit better and map out the way forward a little bit more clearly. But this mini break has let me do that let me focus on a few other things and in a way that's been helpful in terms of planning the investigation it let me spend a little bit of time contemplating on things and it also gave me an opportunity to revisit some of the things I hadn't managed to do and that ended up being quite important perhaps very very important a few months ago when we were looking at Matthew James Jackson, it had been suggested to me that the cottages, the mill cottages, 126 and 127 Newton Road, where Zoe had lived, had fallen into disrepute, disrepair. There were rumours about those cottages after the Cunn family had moved out and after the people who lived next door to the Cunn family had sadly died. They were empty or supposed to be empty but it was odd that the address that was given for Matthew James Jackson when he disappeared in early 1970 was 126 Newton Road now that shouldn't have been possible because they were supposed to be empty so I needed to work out what was going on with those cottages not least of which because of the proximity to the deposition site someone who it was suggested to me might be able to help me was a man called John Bisbaum. Now John runs a record shop in Burton called Henry's Records. Highly recommended by the way. But in 1969 he was living in Windshill. He'd been head boy at Burton Grammar School and was now at Leeds University but was regularly back in Windshill and Burton to see his family and his friends. So why did I need to talk to John? Well it was suggested to me that he 
knew about the rumours about the cottages. But also he was very knowledgeable about the music and entertainment scene in Burton at the time. In fact, when he went to Leeds University, he was very, very involved in putting on music at the university. And given the possibility that our victim may also have been involved within the entertainment scene around Burton, I thought John might have some very interesting memories to tap into. And he did. I've been trying to reach John for about three months, but he'd been quite unwell. And so therefore, understandably, me asking about my obsession with a 50-year-old case, and he didn't know me, remember, that would have been a very low priority for him, and quite rightly. But I persisted, as I do, and in this recent quiet period, I sent him one final request for a conversation. And happily, this one got a response. So we were able to set up an interview, and this podcast is really that interview. We talked around a few subjects, and there's some very interesting information on a range of those things. But in this interview, I think, there's a nugget, which when I first heard it, my pulse started racing. Hello, John. Ken Davis here. I've been working on this case of this man that was found in 1971 in Windshill for a long time now, for about two years. Talked to lots and lots of people who were around at the time. I was talking to someone I think you you know, uh, Nick, Nick Whitaker, And he said, have you spoke to John Bisbaum? I said, well, no, uh, but uh, I'll kind of try and see if I can I can get hold of him. Because, I mean, Nick mentioned that I think, think you were involved in the music scene and things like that around the time and and just may have some interesting contextual background to the to the times and so therefore I just thought that it might be worth me just making contact there's a couple of specific things that I wouldn't mind just having the chat to you about but th- that's the kind of context to me really wanted to have a, a quick chat with you is, is, is that is that okay yes except the of course the, the musical scene I was involved in was uh, at university in Leeds ah right you run a record shop and stuff, though, don't you? So, presumably... I do have a record shop in Burton now, yes. For about three months, I've been in hospital, so I'm, I'm out of commission at the moment, which is probably, if I sound a bit weak and hoarse, that's, that's what it is, so you have to bear with me. And, and, well, I hope you're feeling better. I don't have that excuse for feeling weak and hoarse. Doubly grateful, therefore, that, that uh, we can chat then. Yeah, what it, well, there's a couple of things that Nick mentioned, and let me just kind of set the scene. Having been around the, the area, you must know about the case, or is it, is it worth me just reminding you of a couple of the details? No, I know about the case because a friend of mine, Andy Parker, who was a mutual friend of Nick Whitaker's and myself, mentioned it to me once and asked me if I knew about it. And of course, I'd vaguely heard about it, but I, of course, I was aware, I was in Leeds at the time of the body being found. Which I think was about 71, 72 time, was it? Uh, at the end of March 1971. Well, I, I, was in, I was in Leeds then, but I'd heard, I heard of it, obviously, in a small, smallish town, so one gets to hear about this thing. And uh, it was committed, or the body was, was found, shall we say, a stone's throw from um, a pub that I used, which was the Royal Oak. Which, which is now the Sump. It was always known as the Sump, even in those days. Oh, was it? Uh, even though its official name was the Royal Oak? Yeah, but it was it was known as the sum. Nobody ever knew why. I, I never knew why it was called the sum, but it was. It was uh, it was the nearest pub to our old school as well, which was the, the grammar school top of the hill there. And um, I, w- I was an illicit member of the of the crib team down at the. So obviously I I know that area pretty well. 
you, you could get to that that spot in those days from various places. So you just fire away. What, what, what do you want to know specifically? You said something there that I wouldn't mind just picking up on. You mentioned you could get to that spot from a variety of places. Obviously, you've been racking my brains in terms of how the body got there. Clearly, there's the there's the way on across Bass's Meadow, you know, go down uh, Meadow Lane uh, off the bridge and then round that way. Long way to go there, but you can get there that way. And of course, there was the bridge at the time that ran across from, well, just near the sump, actually, the house that Jewellery Company was in. In fact, that's the way David Nathan went over when he discovered the body. And I suppose you could get over the weir if it was a particularly low trend at the time. Am I missing any other ways to get on there? Not not really. You could, I think you could get down there past the public baths that existed then, off the bridge as well. Kids could get in many, any number of ways. There used, to be a, there used to be a dog pound off the bridge, on the opposite side to the entrance meadow lane, where stray dogs were put. And you, if you went down the, the little road leading to that, you could hop over the wall there and get onto the, what was called the Ox Hay. Uh, in those days, you could walk right around that island. I don't know, but it used to take about three or four hours to walk around it. You'd walk past that, that spot, past the, the old rifle rifle range. Yeah, the big wall at the end of the island there. And of course, we do that often and, and when we were kids and go take our girlfriends down there and all sorts. Because it's, it's really beautiful down the far end of the island. You mentioned the specific things I want to talk about. There are a couple that I wouldn't mind just picking your brain on. One of the interesting, really interesting things about the case that I don't think is public knowledge or, or wasn't until fairly recently was that when the university did some tests on the skull about six years, seven years ago, they ran it through a database which uh, gave a fairly accurate estimate of where in the world, based on certain measures, uh, that skull may have originated from what type of uh, population genealogically and one of the most likely outcomes was not the UK by the way was was Hungary now uh, which was unusual because there weren't that many Hungarians even after 1968 there weren't oh sorry 1956 there weren't that many Hungarians and one of the guys who worked at the mill which of course is very close was Hungarian a man called Frank, Frank Kuhn who at the end of 1969 went emigrated to Australia and uh, he has a daughter called Zoe who I've got to know quite well now because I found I found her in Australia when I started to dig a little bit deeper into where he lived which is 126 Newton Road there's two semi-detached cottages 126 127 Newton Road which were part and owned by the mill you had to work at the mill to live there and he did he was a, he was he worked in the mill but then left but then in a bit of a mystery I was looking through the Burton mails of the time, 1970, a man goes missing from that address. And that man's called Matthew James Jackson. And he shouldn't have been living there because he didn't have no association with the mill whatsoever. I'm starting to think that stuff was going on in 126 and maybe even 127 Newton Road around that time that doesn't really add up. And Nick mentioned to me, Nick Whitaker, that I think you may have had a conversation with him at some point saying things went on in those cottages around that time. And that's kind of all I know. Is, is there anything in that or am I barking up the wrong tree? Well, um, it was all rumour. We often used to, there used to be some, there used to be some strange goings on up there. We often, you'd hear people in the pub talking about uh, 
sort of late night parties and stuff going on up there. When you say uh, what, cottages, are we specifically talking about those cottages? Yes, yes, and um, we, we thought that was strange because we, well, I'd, I'd actually thought they were deserted, but they, they obviously were occupied. When these rumours were going around about uh, stuff going on in them cottages, what kind of year do you think that would have been? 68, 69 time. Right. Uh, the Kun family, Frank Kun, the Hungarian, and Zoe and his wife, Valtraud, emigrated in September 69. So we know they were living there, and they were very proper people. Uh, the house next to them had been occupied by an older lady and an older man, and the lady had died, and the man had died much earlier, and then in, in think, I think about 1968, that that became unoccupied. And the mill would not would not rent this to anyone. So they would rather have it empty than rent it to someone who didn't work at the mill. So 127 became empty in, in 1968. 126, where Frank lived, became vacant in September 1969. What happened then was, according to the records of who was living there, no one lived there until 1972 when a man called John Statham who did work at the mill lived in one in 126 and and lived there for years after so there was a period between the end of 69 and about the start of 72 when they were vacant it, does that kind of align with the dates you're thinking yes it is yeah yeah okay yes. um, so when yeah, but one would have thought that the owners of the mill would have realised if, if they'd been squatters in there of any sort or they'd, they'd been illegally occupied or whatever. It was all rumour. There were always rumours about ongoings on at those two cottages. Um, you know, around about that time, uh, when I used to come back and visit, I'd be, I used to go down to the pub there with my friend Royston Bradley, who's now, now gone, unfortunately. And um, they'd often be or, you know, trouble at, trouble at mill sort of uh, rumours, you know, that sort of thing. In the paper, in early 1970, a man goes missing from that house, 126 Newton Road, and he never worked at the mill. And I don't know how he, how he was reported missing, though I do know he was not a particularly nice man because I've, I've tracked his wife down uh matthew james jackson and uh we're pretty sure it's the same one and he was uh he was a pretty nasty piece of work i seem to remember a chap like that um being banned from the pub from somebody who lived up there being banned from this from the sub by uh by the shiltons who ran the pub in those days now you mention it but uh i can't be sure of that but it just rings a bell just um, just on that then john the man who was banned from the pub, would you remember him, i.e. physically? Or did you just not know him, just heard about it? No, I don't think I remember him. I might have seen him in there, but he was never, he was never in such a state that he was banned or chucked out while I was there. So I don't know. I don't know the name. Okay, but do you know what he was banned for? Yeah, just effing and blinding and doing it in the pub. I seem to remember he was... And he, he, he was all, apparently he was always... Um, a bit pissed and prone to violence when he was pissed and they didn't like him in there but tolerated him and then eventually I think Keith, Keith, Keith Shorten who I think was the landlord's son 
had a septum with him one night. They just chucked him out and banned him, told him not to come back again. Was he a local man, the man that got banned, or was he somebody who just kind of turned up a few months before and was hanging around? I'd, I'd thought he was from, from nearby, from one of those cottages. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I, I thought that they, they said, you know, they, they, they used to drop in sometimes because he lived nearby. But there were plenty of houses nearby anyway, apart from the cottages. So it could have been anybody. But he was very local, certainly. He was, he was certainly within, within staggering home distance, anyway. Um, often been, but I don't. I don't recall him at all. What I'm really asking there is: is was he a was he a Winsill man, or was he someone who had happened to come along to Winsill? Because the Matthew James Jackson that I know, who was living, who was the man who went missing, wasn't from Winsill. He was from the south coast. What I will say is, if he'd been a local, if he'd been a Winsill man. Um, with that sort of reputation, I would almost have certainly known you by name. Yeah, I think that's true, John, yeah. So, I, I never knew of a Matt Jackson who was a, a, a Winsor local troublemaker. And in those days, you, you knew who the troublemakers were. And, and I would certainly have known a Matt Jackson who was a local thug or troublemaker or piss artist, certainly. Your input on that is really interesting. A couple of other things I wouldn't mind... There is suggestion that the the man who was found, because we obviously we've got a very very good physical description of the of the skeleton, of course, he was found entirely naked, apart from a ring on his right wedding ring finger, a pair of kind of beigey socks. Just speculating on how he ended up not having any clothes and being buried is that there's a possibility because of the certain attributes of his body that he may have been a transvestite somebody who may have been dressed in that kind of way or led that kind of lifestyle but it, the ring which he wore on his right wedding ring finger which again certainly in search, my research people have indicated that might be an indicator of being gay as we say now so what i'm getting around to you not be traced by his dental records they tried to that's what they did first. He doesn't appear in any dental records. Not no English ones, anyway. In no, exactly, not English ones. So he may have been done abroad, may have been done privately. Certainly, in the work I've done, it seems that the police really only spoke to the national health dentist. But it's clearly someone who put huge emphasis and spent a lot of money on their appearance. So it makes me think this person might have been involved in the performing arts in some way. So anyway, that's a long story. I'm just thinking in terms of where you lived and people you would have seen, and particularly because you're in, you were in, involved in performing arts yourself to a degree in terms of I know up in, in Leeds, but you would have been you would have hand, had a hand on the music scene and things. Absolutely. I mean, we we played in local bands um, before I went to university. I'd go and visit my friends who was who didn't go to university, who were still back in the town, and we go out all over the place. There were, um, the, the place where we used to go, um, or meet, was, um, there used to be a, a hotel pub called The Queens, which it's now called The Three Queens, but in those days, there used to be a bar in there called The Stable Bar, and that's where we used to go as students, where a lot of the artifarties used to go. We went to the art school and places like that. I mean, I did, I did, I went to the art school before I went to university, and uh, there were several characters there. Um, there were certainly some characters in the stable bar. I mean, in those days, there, there wasn't a huge gay scene, and, and, and 
certainly not a transvestite scene in the town. It was just the beginning of gay living. He was underground to a large degree. He was underground very much so. There were, there were several people in the stable bar who we would regard as, in those days, as but the word then was queer. You know, um, we, we would think of them as being queer. There were, there were, there were several. There was, there was one chap who vaguely fits your description, who didn't have short hair, but he may well have had a wig. And the th he always used to sit at a bar, at a bar stool. And he was never with anybody. He was always by himself. And he used to sit at a bar stool. We sat in a corner. And mm -hmm. uh, we were on sort of nodding terms with him. He, he was never with anybody. Interesting. And, um, he was always very smartly dressed. And he, he always wore coloured socks, either bright yellow or bright pink. Oh, hang on, John. What did you say? He always wore coloured socks. Jeez. So we noticed him, you know. Um, that's, in that's incredible, though, because that's exactly what the body had. I thought you said beige. Well, I did say beige, but you've got different descriptions here. We've got, we've had pink, we've had yellow. Oh. Kind of light pink with yellow toe and top and things like that. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. He was always, he was smartly dressed. I couldn't actually tell you what, exactly what he was wearing because it was fairly dark in there. But uh, we, we, he always wore these socks. So he used to go up to the, the jazz club as well at um, Staten Hill. There used to be a jazz club at the Barley Mow. And uh, occasionally we got, I got there with friends and he would be in there again by himself. Do you know a name? We, we were never never on friendly. I say just nodding terms. If he was in there, I went up to the bar. I just nod and he nod back. You know, um, I don't think I ever spoke to him. I don't think I ever saw anybody speak to him. I don't even think the barmaid. I think he, he just filled his glass and that was it. This is really interesting, John. Let's 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 go back then. So, what year would this have been? 1970. I was still at university. I, I think he was he was there for a, a you know. On several occasions when we went in there, I would have think 1969, 70 time. Right, so that's good. So how how old would you estimate this man to have been? Oh gosh, um, older than me for certain. That might mean. So I would think he would probably be in his 30s then. I was in my early 20s. And he was definitely older than me, but not not middle aged. So difficult to estimate really. So I never really never really closely examined him. He's just the salient points of the and the. Um, we, we just got the impression that he may have been queer. Um, why, I don't know. He just gave that... You can tell. Isn't it so. peculiar uh, that you noticed someone's socks? I mean, they must have been really noticeable for you all after this time, randomly, to remember a man's socks. Well, he used to sit on a stool bar with his feet up on the stool, so obviously the, the socks were quite visible. They weren't... Um, he wasn't standing up. We didn't notice him when he was standing up, but the, well, you could you could certainly see that there were coloured socks, yeah. And uh, and and so noticeable that people presumably would have commented on him, nudged you, and said, oh, yeah. "Jesus Christ, you seen them socks?" <laughs> I mean, was that the kind of conversation that would have happened? Well, yes, but I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't something with him. It was just you know. I see he's got his yellow ones on today, or um, things like that. That's all, really. Nothing. Yeah. It wasn't a big talking point. Nobody took the piss out of him or anything like that. Um, he, he was live and let live. And that, I mean, that is really, really interesting, given what we know about the body. Well, it was just... I couldn't even tell you how tall he was. I say, he always used to be sitting... I don't, remember, I don't remember a huge amount about him apart from that. But he didn't have short hair. He, he had long... Uh, a sort 
sort of a shaggy, not not long in his collar, but it was it was sort of shaggy on top, like somebody had put a a very fluffy pancake on top of his head or something. We never never spotted us as being a wig. Okay. Semi darkness in there, so we we, we wouldn't. Uh, what colour was his hair? Uh, I can't remember. Um, it wasn't black. It was, and it wasn't. It was sort of. Oh gosh. Oh God! It was grey brown, I think. I can't remember. Okay. I can't remember. But but not old enough to be grey like I am now. But no, no. but light sandy. That's that sort of that sort of yes brownies yeah not ginger or not not very light brown but I'm trying to think I can trying to picture him now but uh, I say the lighting wasn't good in there the lighting was better in the in the jazz club and I seem to remember he, he had. It was, it was, his hair was very unkempt. Considering the rest of him was um, pretty smart, he was he was fairly fairly neat, dapper. They used to call it. Um, he was, he was a, a dapper dresser, but his hair was out of keeping. The rest of him, you know, it, it, nobody's hair in those days was 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 shall we say tidy, but his was a little bit. Um, it looks as if he'd been standing in a wind tunnel sometimes. But you know? He may have had very fine hair, so I don't know. Sometimes that can get a little it's bit. It's possible. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. It's only you mentioning him now. I'm casting my mind back. Well, uh, this is really, in, but this is first time anyone has ever said to me in three years of doing this from Windshill. Oh, I knew a boat who used to wear yellow socks. Who who kind of fits the description? I mean, this is really interesting. I, I, I don't know if he fits the description. I don't know how tall he was for a start. No, but, no. Uh, so this was 69, 70. You were away at uni. You come back, presumably, in about, what, 72? Well, no, I visit regularly. Oh, OK, no, OK, no, OK. I, I, didn't, I didn't come back to Burton until... Because I worked in Leeds. Oh, uh, OK. I didn't come back to Burton until 77. OK, oh, OK. I'd come back and visit my parents and my friends along. We'd meet in there. I mean, some of my friends were at Oxford and Cambridge and we'd all arrange to meet in the stable bar. But most, a lot of them were from Winston as well. OK. Um, but did this man with the yellow sock, was he still knocking around in the mid-70s? Because if he was, obviously, he's, he's not Fred. The last time I saw him would have been 69, 70. I, 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 didn't, I didn't see him, didn't see him again after that. Because the jazz club stopped. We didn't go up there again. And we stopped going to the stable bar because it changed hands. And um, a lot of my friends had drifted off to all over the all over yeah. the world by then to get to, to get jobs and stuff. So, um, so I didn't go back in again. So just just so I understand accurately these different places where this man might have been, this stable bar. The stable bar was just where we used to meet and drink. It was a, a bar in the Queen's Hotel. The Queen's Hotel. The jazz club was at the Barley Mo Pub, which was at Stapenhill uh, in Burton, and that was. Um, well, it's now, it's still the Barley Mow's still there, but the Jazz Club's long finished. Near, near the, the parish church in, um, in Stapenhill. Yeah, I know where you are. He was there quite often. Again, I never saw him with anybody. You know, I never saw him with anybody, male or female. This chap with the yellow socks, you would have seen him in the stable bar in the Queen's Hotel. You would have seen him at the Stapenhill Jazz Club in the Barley Mow Pub. Jazz Club, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't think I, ever, I don't think I ever saw him anywhere else. Yeah, I was about to say, you never saw him in the sump or anything like that. No, no, I didn't. I mean, that's been 40 minutes of me on the edge of my seat there, John. Well, I'm glad you found it useful. I, I, can't, I can't really see it. It's advanced your... Uh... Oh, it has. It really, really, really has. I'm interested in what you're saying about 126, the rumours around 126. Can it was all rumour and... You, you know, yeah, but... All these things, 
go from from a, a small acorn and grow into a big. Yeah, they do, but I'm a big believer in no smoke without some kind of fire. Mentioned more than once that there were a lot of strange goings on up there, and I think it's strange, isn't it, that uh, that the mill owner's son said that they were definitely unoccupied and we thought that they were occupied. And we know the police knew they were occupied because that was the address given when that Matthew James Jackson went missing in, 90, in the start of 1970, when they were supposed to be unoccupied. If, if anything else comes to mind, I'll read you back. But I, I, I think, I mean, I'm getting old. My memory isn't what it was. Um, Pretty good, John. I, I have a really very good memory. But... Please, I mean, if you're drifting off tonight and something occurs to you, let me know about it because honestly this is very important stuff is there are there is there anybody around still that you know in winsdale burton or anywhere else actually come to that who also would have been with you in that group who may have also or recognized this guy or anything else i mean what i'm asking really is do you know anyone who was still around who was around at the time who's still around no unfortunately not not in, not in this country anyway doesn't matter, by the way. Uh, I, I mean, I've been talking to people in Australia and all over the place about this case in the last two years. Uh, doesn't matter where they are. I'm trying to think. I don't know whether they're, they're, I, I, I think I have to think about it. There, there may be people who remember him as well. I don't know. Most lots of people just don't remember that sort of thing anyway. I'm, I'm surprised I can remember. But I do. I do, I do. It's funny that the thing I remember most about about him is his socks. But uh, they were they were. And as I say, we were sat in a corner of the stable bar, and he was sat about 10 12 feet from us and it was always in the same place and so were we so that's really 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 interesting there's one one final thing i wouldn't mind running past you which is did you know anthony hardy yes yes he was at school with me because uh, you know what you know about anthony don't you in terms of what he became oh yes he was a serial killer wasn't he, he was a, yeah he was but some girls yeah. Yeah, and 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 yes. according to him Although he was suspected of many, many more. And although this murder wasn't in his MO, let's say, or wasn't his MO, actually he tried to kill his wife uh, long before he killed anyone, and that MO is completely different. So we've got to be a bit careful that we don't rule things out. Because obviously it is odd to have a serial killer growing up close to where a body was found. I was head boy at the school when he was probably in the fourth form or third form. So I can, I can remember him, he was... Uh... Very sullen, withdrawn chappy. Bright lad, by all accounts. Yes, he, he, he was, uh, he, academically, he was quite gifted. Personality-wise? He, he, he was a sociopath. He was um, an odd sort of, a very odd sort of lad. But not odd enough to be sectioned or anything like that. But, you know, he was, he, he would have been called um, eccentric in those days. It, it proved to be bloody slightly worse than eccentric, didn't it? Yes, he did. Well, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't put it past him, you know, you, you, you never know, especially if there was any, if he was approached in, in any way sexually by this chap, you can imagine him reacting very violently, that's all sort of speculation. But, you know, to be honest, speculation is the name of the game in something 50 years old, but, you know, one piece of speculation might, uh, might be the key to this, though. So that was my conversation with John Bisbaum. For me... It felt absolutely riveting, and I could have spoken to John all afternoon. And it just goes to show the importance of talking to as many people as possible who were around at the time. I'm more convinced than ever that that will be the key that unlocks this case. Someone will know something. It's really only fragments, I know, but it feels like important fragments. 
There was definitely something going on at 126, 127 Newton Road. I'm pretty sure about that now. And was the man who was ejected from the sump pub, the Royal Oak, as it was then, Matthew James Jackson coming into view again? And don't forget just how close the burial site is from that pub. It's literally across a narrow part of the river. If you stand outside the sump pub, as it is now, look over the river, you can see the burial site about 40 to 50 metres away. And of course, the man in the socks. That stopped me in my tracks. What an unusual memory. Still being able to remember the colour of the socks of a total stranger 50 years later. They must have been quite something, those socks. And over the years, and throughout this podcast series, there's been some debate about the colour of the socks. They're often described as pink socks, but I personally have poured some cold water on that idea over the last four months. I tend to describe them as beige. I described them as beige initially to John Bispoun. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in the alkaline soil of the kiln, they'd faded. But that memory of John's made my hair stand on end. And that's the first unprompted connection I've ever heard with something that we know was on the body. So I think it's time to try and get a definitive idea of the colour of those socks. It's suddenly become very, very important. Essentially, there are a few ways of doing that, but I needed to start by going back to the original description of the body produced at the time of its discovery to see what was being said about the socks. I've been through all the original newspaper reports and there doesn't seem to be any very clear idea of what the colour was that really only referred to as socks, not specifically the colour. Now, in later newspaper reports, decades later, they're talked about as being pink socks. So that came from somewhere, but I've always been very wary indeed of non-contemporary accounts because that can be coloured by all kinds of things. Contemporary accounts, ones which were made at the time of the discovery, don't mention the colour, which is annoying. But secondly, there's a TV report, and you can find it on the Facebook page, and that report is about 10 minutes long, quite detailed, shows David Nathan going over the bridge. It also shows the socks. The reporter handles the socks. And they don't look particularly pink to me. They look pretty plain. Now, that is where I got the idea of beige socks from, looking at that film. But something struck me. When I watched that film again, none of the colours are pretty lifelike. All of the colours of the film are not what you'd see outside now. And it strikes me that the colour of the film also deteriorates. The colour on that film probably isn't representative of what the actual colour of those socks was. So again, we've got to be really careful 
with using that film as an example of the color of anything. The third source is the book, the book that was written by Michael Posner about 15 years ago. There are only two references to the color of the socks in that book on page 67 and on page 89. Both of them refer to them as pink socks very clearly. Now in that book though that description is not attributed to a specific person. It's not DCI Huff who was leading the investigation saying there were pink socks. It's the author. So we have to be a bit careful about that because it's not directly attributable to someone involved in the case. So, so far, we haven't really got anything definitive, but maybe we've probably uncovered the best evidence of what the color of those socks were. Do you remember episode 16? I think it was called The Policeman and the Postman. When we interviewed the scenes of crimes officer, Rod Bloss, who's now in Australia, he was the person who actually dug the body out. Well, I'm pretty sure in that interview, I asked him about the socks. I checked it and I did. And this is what he said. And it was pretty definitive. Just going back to those socks, Rod, what colour do you remember yeah. them being? Oh, now you caught me. <laughs> A lot of people have said they were pink and there's some significance to that. I can remember there was pink in it. Some pale yellow as well. I remember. So that's pretty clear. And that's from the scenes of crimes officer who dug the body out. He spent a lot of time with those socks. Hours. And if he says there was pink in it and pale yellow, I think that's the best evidence we've got. The socks on the body were pink and pale yellow. Which for me makes my conversation with John Bisbaum even more important. The two colours John mentioned were pink and yellow. Is that a coincidence? Well it could be, but it might not be. So it sets me off on my next line of investigation. Trying to locate people who regularly visited the stable bar in the Queen's Hotel in Burton or the jazz club at the Barney Moe in Stapen Hill. See if we can get a second opinion on who that man was. And I was just putting the final touches to this episode when something else struck me about that man in the socks at the bar. Why did he sit alone, never with anyone, silently, on nodding, but not speaking, terms with people. As John Bisban said, he never spoke with that man and that man never even spoke to the bar staff. They just filled his glass. Could it have been because his English was poor? Was he alone in a foreign country seeking entertainment, maybe company, a loner, maybe gay? John Bisbaum was pretty sure about that. A stranger in a strange town with no roots or close friends. Or in other words, exactly the kind of man who if they did go missing would have no one to miss them and no dental records 
to identify them. But until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.